so last week we were here when oh, it was I can't o- hear you in when, it was, when it was orange outside. So the purpose yeah. the purpose of this, I know you're a broadcaster, so that you can hear yourself actually. Oh, and so that you can hear yourself. I don't usually do well. Yeah, because right, if, oh. you, if you go away from the mic, you'll hear you hear that you're fading. Oh, oh. so I want to oh. get your guys' take on this. You guys are probably f- frequent. Uh, your inbox is probably full often. If somebody sends you an email and wants to set up a meeting and then proposes a time that's like three weeks out, are you impressed or turned off? Like, are you like, cause my is like, chance. you're not, you're not that busy. I don't, I'm not impressed. Uh, is it a meeting that I want to take? Like, did I watch Just this? Just in general. If somebody reaches out to you and to set up a meeting, they put out like three weeks. Of, I, why I is think, it's, four months? I think it's really smart. Cause yeah. I tell that's people I am here. always free three weeks from now. Interesting. But you look at my calendar, there's never any time in the next three weeks. Ever. Not to brag. Okay, good Not for to, you. It's I, been that way for like 20 years. It's just, it's easy to fill up your days. Okay. I'm not Warren Buffett with like so the empty I, calendar. So I have the opposite. I'm, I don't think I hear myself, actually. Somebody sent me an email the other day. like well, let's fix that. A connection. Mm-hmm. And the guy was like, I could talk at 315. And I was like, that's the sign of somebody who's busy. Like, let's go. I got it like... I want to. I want to do it quickly. Really, it was great. And the guy, the guy was like, "I'm back to back to back to back to back." And it was only 15 minutes. All I needed. I mean, how how long do you need for an intro? That's, you know? Yeah. I literally could never do that. Like my day has never got anything. It's either packed full or wide open. And I'm like, Ted, yeah. are you, you're a three weeks out person too. Yeah. Uh. Well, the other the, the bigger question is, if today you don't want to talk to that person, and then you say, "Oh yeah, like I can do it in three weeks." You know, that's like classic time management 101. If, if, if it's not hell yeah now, don't take the meeting in three weeks. Because three weeks come too. and you're like, oh, man, I just wish so, I All right, so it. I'm talking to the wrong people. You guys are very busy. I mean, I'm busy too, but I can always take a call. You know, you know, who, a lot of you know who has a really packed. great uh, – you know who has a – is it a rubric? You know who has a really great rubric for that? Harrison Ford. Yes. <laughs> Danny Meyer said somebody taught him that before you say yes to something – Ask yourself, if it were tonight, would I still want to do it? That's yeah. good. Would I be excited? And he's, like, very gracious. People, you could imagine, like, people ask him to be part of stuff all the time, be on a podcast, go to this event, etc. It's so easy to say yes to things that are in three months. Yeah. So he's like, before I say anything, I'll just say, like, if I had to do this today, would I be as excited as I think I yeah. will be if I have to do it in three months? And uh, when you do that, you could you could like very graciously say no to almost anything. Because yeah. yeah. I don't want to do anything. Yeah. By the way, is this is this on my head on purpose to cover this? I would say the elephant in the room is Ted's what? killer had, had uh, what is it? Uh, it's from playing tan tennis. Tan lines. With a federal line. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're fine. Is that a shadow? No, it's a tan line. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Oh, there we go. I'm back. You're playing a but lot of, you're playing a lot of tennis outdoors? Yeah. Okay. Um there's a whole like one of the little leadership things is pre committing your calendar. What so does that happen- mean? It means like if you look at my calendar, if I'm writing something like I'm working on a book now, there's twice a week where there's three hours. It just says writing time. and I won't take any meetings in that time. But if I don't do that, by the time that day comes, like, won't, you won't have a block no, no, or, no. or reading time. That's how I was. I, I had to write a module for the Kai Association. And I literally got to the point exactly what Ted was saying, where I had to block off hours of my calendar because – my team was booking me for stuff when I was trying to write, and I just got to the point where I realized, like, unless I actually, like, completely book it off my calendar, I'm never going to be able to sit down and do this. You know this. what the alternative is? Nobody wants you for anything. 
Yeah. And I, I, well, yeah, I have been, I have been there. Yeah. Yep. So I try not to like bitch and moan about my schedule. First of all, it's I very do, lame. First of all, I do it all to myself anyway. Oh, I'm so busy. You're, you're no, not, I know. Yeah. So I don't do that. Ted, what are you writing? I'm doing a uh, a Rubenstein type book on this on the private equity deals podcast series. So it's going to be called Private Equity Deals, and it's. 12 to 18 case studies of individual deals that are the podcast transcript. And I'm writing intros for all the chapters. And are so, you, so it's all private equity. Are you going to be interviewing people? I've for, already done it. So I oh, started okay. this. I started another podcast last year called Private Equity Deals. Every episode is with the GP talking about one of the deals in their portfolio. Or and then the, are these like oh, good, cool deals idea. that went well, deals that didn't go well? I mean, look, there's, there's always going to be a bias towards doing something that's either going well or has gone well. Yeah. But it's not massively cherry picked. So I say it has to be in the portfolio or or an exit in the last year, and then they pick the deal. So who did you talk to? Is that a is that part of surprise? No, it's in, it's like it's, it's a podcast. From, it's, so it's, it's out. From the podcast. They're all out. Yeah. So you're so, turning the podcast into a book. Yeah. But like the easy way to do it, the way yeah. David Rubenstein does it, which yeah. is like eighty percent of the book is the podcast transcript edited. And now I'm just writing interest. That's the right Because there isn't that's like yeah, this. Right one of the things I realized, I was doing it all ad hoc. Like the first season was a bunch of well-known sponsors. The second season was all companies. So there's a Yellowstone Club episode. There's a Fenway Sports episode, TaylorMade, Yahoo that Apollo bought. And not by design, but like you start adding up 10 deals and there's one distressed. There's one turnaround. There's one corporate carve out. There's one like fifth time private equity owner. And you, you, when you layer all together, you're like, oh, this is how, like, private equity works. And each one has their own nuance. So I was like, it's not – it's just repackaging it in a different way. Who do you way. think is going to buy the book? People that work in private equity now? KKR. people that want to understand it better? Or? Yeah. It's the audience of the podcast. I mean, it's like the two books I did are 10, 12,000 copies. It's like yeah. the podcast That's audience niche. who wants the book. Any, uh, any REA private equity people? No. Oh, yeah. It's all institutional. So. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. You mean like people any people buying pri- – yeah, you know how many you know like, how many RAAs get like bought? investing in? Yeah. Oh, it's huge. Like, oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what about that? We're not good enough here? for an audience. You mean? No, for no, the for the podcast. For a chapter. Yeah, yeah, for a chapter. Or for the podcast. Well, the, the I hadn't thought about that. Like it's a, a good. It's a really good. Like idea. A Carson or yeah, it's the like biggest one. These doing guys? deals of yeah. Do no, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. You guys. No, we never. We never. We don't. We never took any private equity money. Yeah, but you're buying RAAs, right? No, never. No. No. What I mean, about, like, I could do Carson? it with Rockefeller. Like, that'd be oh, yeah, good. Carson. Carson, you know, Jamie Hopkins is yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, do it with Carson. They they have private equity. Yeah, sponsor. I have like, I, yeah. Right. Could easily do that. See? Right? Just you're, already, That's you're already, uh, you're already, you're uh, already getting something out of this. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, good. You sound good. Are your headphones up I'm to good. I'm good. I'm good. Yes? Yeah. All right. Are you still futzing with the camera lens? I know I'm just you're, focusing. Just I know focusing. you're a perfectionist, but let's get the show on the road. So, yeah, let's do it. Good. Right, market let's is ripping again road. today. Three wow! All we're, right, we're going. Are right, you guys excited for this? Yeah. What are you? You sending texts right now? Set the, mar- the, the market's show. ripping. The I want to see what's away. going on. Don't, mul- don't multitask me. What episode is this? 97. Ninety episode ninety-seven, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Redholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Redholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Crane Shares. 
check out our Talk Your Book episode that's on Monday on the Animal Spirits feed with Crane Chairs. We're talking about Clip. I call it Calip. That's their China internet and covered call strategy. That was a very interesting conversation. Uh, thank you to Crane Chairs for sponsoring today's episode. For more information on Clip with the K, visit craneshares, also with the K, dot com slash Calip. Welcome to The Compound and Friends, everyone's favorite podcast about investing, finance, business. Uh, what else do we do on the show? Do romance. Romance. Uh, we are, <laughs> we are going to have an amazing show today. Thank you guys so much for listening and joining us. We have two very special first-time guests here at The Compound and Friends, uh, and I'd like to introduce them in no particular order, but... Ted, you're going to have to wait. That's fine. All right. Uh, Shana Sissel is here. Shana is the founder, president, and chief executive officer of Banrian Capital Management. Wait, did I do that right? You did. Okay. Do people get that one wrong too? All the time. Okay. Is that an Irish word? It is. It's Gaelic. It means queen. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> well, that makes sense. It just totally makes sense. <laughs> All right. Banrian Capital Management, where she helps advisors with alternative investing, platform development, and portfolio construction. Shayna is a constant contributor on both CNBC and Fox Business. That's not going to last long. One of them is going to make you exclusive, where she offers her insights on the current state of the markets. Shayna, can I start with one question? Sure. How did you become the queen of alts? Okay, so Cynthia Murphy from- Did the from... last queen get their head cut off? And I don't then know. It was you? I don't know. Howard Stern self-proclaimed? I have no idea, is but... it self-proclaimed or somebody gave it to By me? Somebody way, gave it to me. Okay. The queen of alts, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the queen of alts media. John is clapping. Let's show some deference. All right, how did you get this nickname? So Cynthia Murphy from Title yeah. gave me the nickname. I was on their show, um, their happy hour show, yeah. um, like a year ago, right after I started Bonrian. And they asked me where the name came from. And I told them, Bonrian means queen in Gaelic. My mom's Irish from Ireland. And so, you know, I was looking for something cool that sounded cool. Yeah. And queen capital management sounded incredibly lame, but was also taken. So uh-huh. I just threw the word into a translator and then that came out and I thought, that sounds cool. Home run. And so she was like, oh, that makes sense that you're the queen of alternatives. And then that's how it came to be. Now, do you have any official duties as queen? Are there things that you have to, are there things that you have to do in that, in that role or? Uh, I do not have any official duties other than running my company, which is the queen company. Okay. But you are like 24 seven alts. I am. Okay. So yes. So even if you just like randomly got the nickname, I feel like you're going to grow into it and yeah. you will be the acknowledged queen yeah. of Yeah. So Cynthia is my Paul Pierce. Okay. So yeah, the, yeah. the shack to my Paul Pierce. Right. I'm the king of all balds. There you go. Michael's the king of all balds. <laughs> all right. And we have the king of balds. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Ted Sides is in the house. Ted is the founder of Capital Allocators, where he is the host of the Capital Allocators podcast. Ted launched the podcast in 2017, which has since reached... 16 million downloads. That's a big, for people that don't know, that's a big number. Uh, Across all platforms, Ted has also written two books. So You Want to Start a Hedge Fund and Capital Allocators, both of which have generated high reviews. He will publish a third, which we were just talking about, private equity deals next year. Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. So happy to have you. Um, Your podcast is awesome. I know you know that I I feel that way. Uh, Was I on it? A million years ago? You're the only episode of the three or 400 thus far marked explicit. Attaboy. All right. <laughs> Very proud of myself. Thank you. 
right. So, uh, what is it? What is the? Give us like the format of the podcast for those that haven't discovered you yet. Your how many times a week are you are you putting out material? Yeah, one or two. Okay. Uh, interview show. I interview. It's all in the institutional investing world. Mm-hmm. So the money managers and the client side. Okay. Very cool. And you love it. It's awesome. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing I've done for you know twenty years when I was investing before doing the podcast. Right, but now the mic is on. But now the mic is no, but you become like much more public. You come from the hedge fund world where nobody says anything. Yeah, that's right. So that's that's a very big difference. Yeah. But you have a lot of hedge fund people on the show and they want to talk. The thing is, I don't think they want to talk to just anyone. They want to talk to somebody that can actually be on the level. And I think that's what you come to the table with. And it's really unique and people people love it. You keep going? That's the plan. Okay. All right. Very cool. Welcome to the show. Uh, We're going to start with where I think we kind of have to start. I'm going to play something. Since early last year, the FOMC has significantly tightened the stance of monetary policy. We have raised our policy interest rate by five percentage points, and we've continued to reduce our securities holdings at a brisk pace. We've covered a lot of ground, and the full effects of our tightening have yet to be felt. All right, that was the line that people didn't seem to love, I think, or one of the lines. But we had an FOMC meeting this week. The Fed did not raise rates. Uh, that was the expectation, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there was an instant. There was an instant sell-off in the market, which then repaired itself a few seconds later. Not that big of a deal. I wanted to hear from you guys what your thoughts were, if we learned anything new this week, and if markets are kind of like just over the whole idea of whatever the Fed's going to do or not do next. I totally thought this was a posturing thing okay. um, in that it's kind of like the parents telling the kids, like, you behave yeah. or, it's, you know, <laughs> or this is going to happen. I, I really felt like it was their way of saying, look, we're going to pause. But if you guys don't get start, out of hand, don't get out of hand because if you do, if you we're going to break. Again. Right. We're going to break yeah. everything. That's okay. how I felt it. What surprised me the most Wait, was the Fed ha- said, put that NVIDIA down it, well, or, <laughs> or, or I'm coming in there. I still own some. So, okay. All right. Um, but um, yeah, so that's kind of how I viewed it. And um, the thing that surprised me the most was that there were so many people on the committee that are predicting two more rate hikes. Like, I thought two was possible if the the employment markets didn't break. Right. But I thought that was low probability. Um, but, like, the vast majority of the people on the committee were like, two hikes are coming before the end of the year. Well, don't ask me. I thought they were done three hikes ago. So I don't— I, Shana, you just said something interesting about them breaking something. I think the expectation from the market was they're going to go until they break something. Well, guess what? Yeah, I guess you could say that regional banks broke, but the thing that they wanted to break specifically, I think, is the labor market. Yes. And they didn't break it. They paused. Yes. Because nobody wants to be the guy who is, like, trying to get people fired. off. Which right. was, which was, that yeah. was the narrative a couple months ago. They want people to get fired. The Fed wants you to lose your job. Well, they paused. Yeah. Um, but the market is still expecting another 25 basis points in July. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not done. If well, infinity it goes it, to $2 trillion, they're going to f*** it up again. But for now, they're positive. Ted, how do you see it? You know, the Fed, when they speak, and you talk about two projections, I think of it as a meditation. Mm. They're only talking about what they see in the moment right now. Mm-hmm. So a month from now, that could change if the conditions change. So people, the markets don't think that way. The markets are predicting in what they said at right. this moment in time. Right. That's not really how their process works. 
Um, but you have you had unprecedented QE going in 15 years ago. You've got this unprecedented, you know, intractable problem of you got the banking issues on one side, and you got to tame what's going on in the economy on the other side. I have no idea how they navigate through this, um, but I don't really watch the you know, each month after month, because I just don't think it matters. Also, unprecedented uh, uh, contraction in money supply. 4% in the last nine months in M2, a little over 4%. Which I think has happened once. Yeah, it, it's, but we also had like an unprecedented True. rise. True. So, of course. But that's actually where I think the opportunity is in the market right now, is you have to think about if we're going to be pulling liquidity from the system. Maybe they don't do it with rates, but maybe, you know, before the financial crisis, like QE wasn't a thing. But now they can do things where like headline rates stay up and they can say they're being tough on that, but then they can do stuff on the balance sheet. Right. They uh, could stop, they could stop uh, letting as much mature and go. Exactly. Or I want to, I want to share this uh, from Peter Bookvar, friend of the show, uh, as to what the Fed statement said yesterday and confirmed by Jay Powell and his presser, I'll just repeat my belief again that at this point, keeping rates at current levels for a while is more relevant than whether they hike again or not, which I don't believe they will as it is a continuous form of monetary tightening every single day for someone, business and household, whose loan is coming due and isn't being paid off and replaced. I'll also add that QT, quantitative tightening, becomes more of a focus with the rate hiking period taking a breather. That's interesting. So now it's almost like, all right, one more rate hike or no more is not really the thing. It's how much longer are we staying tight and how committed are they to continue to shrink the balance sheet that's going to have a bigger impact? Um, Peter talks about mortgage holders and how they're doing uh, in the current market. And I think one of the big issues is um, you've kind of turned the housing market upside down in Peter's framework. Um, nobody wants to sell. Right. And uh, So here, highlighting how locked in mortgage holders are with the spike in rates and how upside down the Fed has turned the housing market – Redfin updated its stats of where today's homeowners fall on the mortgage rate spectrum. How many homeowners would you guess have a mortgage rate locked in below 3%? 60? I was going to say more like 75%. 23 and a half percent. That's it. Really? Below 4%? Oh, that is much higher. 62. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's we're three, you have to nail the bottom pretty much. Right. Below 5%, 82.4% have a rate below 5 That's down from 857 one year ago. And then below 6%, that's 91.8%. So 91.8% of U.S. mortgaged homeowners are below 6 uh, The record was 92.9% a year ago. Well, they broke the housing market. The existing housing market has been frozen for They froze it. Yeah. I don't know that they broke it. No, they it. did. They bro- well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is existing home sales. Uh, price- are broken. But no, the difference is prices. They didn't, yeah, prices have, prices have not budged. So no, that, like, and they're that's not going to budge because there's yeah. not— They're like, not going to. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's supply-demand. Where I am in uh, northern Chicago burbs, like Wilmette is one of the suburbs that I, like, border. The median home price in Wilmette is, like, $900,000. And not And dropping. these are not yeah. big, huge houses. These are 2,500-square-foot, three-bedroom, two-bath kind of things. Same with us. And they are not dropping. And the thing that I find most interesting is that they're— like, they're on the market for, like, a day. I think the average time on market's, like, 20 days at most. And there's houses I'll see, like, coming soon, and then they never come on the market because they sold as a pocket listing before they ever went on the market. Don't you think this is part of the irony? We, the Fed can't build houses. Nope. So scarcity is keeping prices high. And 
high home, high shelter costs are a big source of the inflation the Fed is trying to fight. We're not gonna, we're not going to show this on the show, but this is mine and Josh's neighborhood. Eight twenty five. Now mm-hmm. this won't sell. This won't sell for eight twenty five. But it's you know it's probably a, a twenty two hundred square foot house. Like it's yeah. a, it's a fine house, but it. It, this, this should legitimately sell for because there aren't because there aren't fifty of those. There's, on the no, market. there's like three. Right. The, the other part of the dynamic here is coming out of COVID, the, particularly in suburb in suburbia, like where we are, the inventory got gutted by people moving out from the mm-hmm. city. So mm-hmm. anytime you're in suburbs around the city, inventory got shot, and right. then you had the rate hikes. So right, now but, no so one's if you're move. so if you're the Fed, you know you, you know you can't build houses yourself, but you kind of need there to be less housing scarcity. You need more houses. But if you raise the rates at which builders borrow, you're not going to get them. So, th- like, th- like to me, it's almost like uh, I understand why you have to raise rates to fight inflation. You're just not going to be able to fight housing inflation that way. If you're going to turn into what you do about it, right? There are in the alt space this booming market of single family rentals. Yep. The, the, queen, I, the yeah. queen has already informed me of this. <laughs> I, I actually, I actually rent a single family home for that very reason, yeah. and the reason why is because. During COVID, we were looking, buying, or renting. And even in the rental market, people were saying, I'll give you six months rent. And they were like bidding wars to rent houses. Crazy. It was crazy because it's a good school district and people wanted their yeah. kids to be in person. And and the scarcity- Oh, the saying, renter was saying, I'll pay you six yeah, months in advance. Six months in advance. Yeah. And there was like bidding wars. Where bidding you, wars to rent. To Unbelievable. Rent. So this Unbelievable. is the thing that- uh, maybe interest rates at maybe you need interest rates at fifteen percent. No, it's structural. It's such people it's need structural. houses. Kids need people my age need houses. This seems like a problem that the banks can do some financial engineering on. I, I just feel like Say this. More. Uh, this is, how, well, why can't you take your mortgage with you? Well, here's the thing that I think is going to happen. You, you know right? how everything has unintended consequences, right? Like, yes. you know, Wall Street loves to create product to solve a problem, but then eventually, whatever they Create created a yeah, creates yeah. a new one. <laughs> I feel like that's inevitably what's going to happen here where some like exotic types of mortgages or something to like what you're saying, you take your mortgage with you or you pass a mortgage through to whoever your buyer is, your rate, something like that's going to happen. And then it's going to blow up. I think the UK has that portable mortgages Yeah, because everyone's stuck. If you want to move, you can't afford to move. Right. And even the people who like are traditionally like, you know, the empty nesters who want to downgrade. Like, they're not going to do that. They'd ra- The bigger house cost them less than if they sold it to buy the smaller house. And they have to go somewhere, and renting is not a- exactly attractive. Exactly. Here's one more thing that rates have done. This is uh, – so I got a new credit card this week, and they said the, av- the APR is 28% on an Amex, 28%. The average interest rate for all credit card accounts from 94 to today, look at that. If you are falling behind in your credit cards, you, it's, you are so screwed. Mm-hmm. 28%. How, That's how does anyone pay that off after a year? Think about what that compounds to. Yeah. Ludicrous. Right. Um, all right. I want to. I want to pivot. And Ted, I want to tell the story. Uh, and I know you've told the story a lot, but it is the fifteenth, the fifteen year anniversary of the bet. Is that? Yeah. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So two thousand seven. Um, I'm not even going to tell the story. Well, I'm going to ask you questions, <laughs> and you're going to end up telling the story. <laughs> two thousand seven. You make a bet with Warren Buffett. Yeah. And this is the thing that I think you became the most known for, like in terms of the media. That's the podcast, but you know before. No, that. <laughs> I'm. I mean, originally, sure. originally. Uh, so you make a bet with Warren Buffett, and the gist of the bet is that what? The gist of the bet. So we the bet started in January one. How of drunk were you and Warren? By the way, was it like a drunken bar room? No, I'm kidding. No, wait. What was the genesis? No. How did this even happen? 
Yeah, we don't even know that. So, okay. So in uh, fall, summer 2007, I read something that he had said to a group of students. So he had said in one of his annual letters, the whole had rocks, got rocks thing about fees, just generally. And somewhere along the way, he made some comment that a group of hedge funds could never beat the market. So there was this transcript and someone had asked him about it. And he Mm. said, well, no one took me up on it, so I must have been right. Oh, he like rhetorically made a bet to himself. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I read it and in the, you know, in the summer of 2007, so keep in mind, in our, I was running a hedge fund of funds at the time. We were short subprime mortgages. This is before all really collapsed. But hedge funds for a long time had beaten the market. It was a good decade for hedge funds Mm -hmm. up to 2007. And the S&P 500 was trading at historical highs. And so I just read it and said, look, he's a very smart guy, but he just, he just, made a bad bet. So I wrote him a letter, like, a, you know, a, on a computer, but I didn't have his email or something. He doesn't have email. So I just sent it to him and he responded. It became this back and forth email exchange about what this thing was and what it was going to be. Wait, phys- you read him, you wrote him physically. and In he, the mail. And he emailed you back? Or he, somebody his emailed you? His assistant emailed with a little chicken scratch note from him. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, and then there was a letter exchange, just pure cat and mouse game, okay. sort of. Um, one of my partners said when he read it at the time, he said, it's pretty clear to him that he's the patsy at the poker table, but he has the most chips. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so okay. we consummated this bet, which ultimately was 10 years. A, call it a group of hedge funds. It was actually five hedge fund of funds. There's a whole reason for that. Against the S&P 500. Isn't that too many hedge funds to start with, though? Five funds of five, hedge funds? Yeah, I was going to say five hedge, of, hedge fund of funds. Like, why not just pick, like, your, yours, global macro example. or something? So let's, let's go back. Okay, so you're, you're in We could go to your childhood. You can go to nine years old. I'm honestly riveted by this story. So the because question is, what do you think the bet is? So let me ask you that. What do you think you're betting on if you're betting hedge funds against the market in January 1 of 2008? You're betting on more volatility, I suppose, and having enough hedge funds that dispersion. are capable of making money. The yeah, dispersion of returns. Up. Okay, like I think that's completely wrong. All of that. I'll just leave. Okay. So the, if most of the time hedge funds are boring, you could say they're boring and they don't make a lot of money these days. And then they were boring and they made eight to ten percent a year, but they're boring. Right. The market's generally not boring. So if the market's trading at all time highs, and you look at any historical metric, you say, "What do you think the projected ten year returns are going to be?" If you thought that was going to be bad, you would bet on anything but the market. If you thought it was going to be good, you're going to bet on the market over anything else. And if you're okay. not sure, it's like, okay, fine, historical averages. So I, I viewed the bet as a referendum on the S&P. For that particular 10-year period. For that particular 10-year period. Go forward from 07. Right. Okay. And it sure looked that way Well, you looked really one. right a year later. Yeah. And yeah. it looked that way for four or five years. Right. You know, Fed comes in the next year, and you had nine years of the S&P up like 18% a year, which is way above historical averages. And sure enough, you know, the S&P won the bet. Right. That's it. Okay. So, but how did it become public that this bet existed? So we agreed that Carol Loomis would come in and write about it. Okay. So she wrote a piece um, that came out in the middle of— Is that Fortune or— Fortune. I yeah, think yeah. it was the middle of 08. Maybe it was the middle of 09. I'm, I'm, okay. I don't remember exactly when it came out. One of the great lessons in the media. So Carol writes a, a, a really—I was shocked. I was like, how are you going to write an article about this little bet? But she wrote this great piece about how it all came <laughs> about. You know? She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, a good sign of the media, that was the only piece written based on facts— 
And it was very simple what she wrote. Everybody else wrote about it. 90% of what everybody else wrote was factually incorrect just about what the bet because was. Because they, the, they didn't talk to either of you. No, because they didn't read her piece. Okay. So, you know, oh, so, it's hedge funds. No, it was actually fund to funds. It was, right. the, you know, the more they were betting against Warren Buffett. No, it was against the more. All these like little factual inaccuracies, just a little thing about the media. Um, so she reported on it. And then Warren announced the results every year at his annual meeting. Oh, you must have been thrilled. It was fun. Yeah. Especially okay. what he used to do was every year, he would, right before lunch, he would announce the results. He said, I told you I'm going to announce the results of the bet. As you can see, I'm losing. Let's go have lunch. Okay. The first year he got ahead, he wrote two pages in his annual letter. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Warren. All right. Did you ever get on the phone with him and just like uh, get closure on the whole thing? So he wins oh, yeah. in the, – the official result is what? End of 16 or end, end of 17? Of, it started in end of 17. End of So end of 17, what are the actual results? Just let's clear up like all the misconceptions people have. Yeah. So the um, – I don't remember the exact, exact numbers. The market was up – Let's call it 7% a year during that, those 10 years. As it turned out, and the hedge funds were up like two or three. So the market okay. won by a lot. Okay, but the hedge funds were still positive returns. Yeah. Okay. Was there a lot of turnover in the five funds of funds that you selected, which means that the thing that you were betting on originally had changed, whereas the S&P really didn't change much other than some stocks getting smaller or larger? Was, uh, that, a, was that like a, a big factor? Um, so I would say two things. Part of the reason you do fund to funds is so that you don't have that turnover, right? Okay. You don't have a fund that goes out of business. So, so the, the oh, funds, a single fund. Right, right. Okay. The funds that we picked were the same. Um, I don't know exactly what was going on in them. Obviously, like as Shannon said, one of them was ours that we were running. Um, I'll tell you some fund turnover. The largest position in one of the funds. Berkshire? Lehman. No. Keep going, though. Bear? No. Ted Weschler's fund. Apple? No, the, Ted, guy, Ted, the, the guy, guy that ended up getting Buffett. The guy that Buffett hired. Yeah, yeah. And so that was the largest position, but then he gave all the money back. So Warren was losing. I guess he became an activist investor because he started pulling out the talent. <laughs> okay, got it. Oh, he pulled <laughs> oh. he pulled Ted out of the, the fund that was competing with him. Yeah. Oh, here's what oh, I wanted to ask you. How did the other four funds of funds feel about being thrown into this very public bet with Warren Buffett? Did you, like, get their – consent beforehand or? Uh, absolutely. So okay. part of the reason, the main reason we never announced who the funds were is number one, it doesn't matter for the theory of the Oh, bet. I didn't even know that. Yeah, oh, it was so never you announced. didn't say who the no, funds were. No, Warren knows and we get the audits and since so it was all verifiable. Well, Warren definitely knows because he started recruiting the people who were beating him. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> um, uh, two of the fund of funds said they would participate but they didn't want it to be known, so we just made it anonymous for everybody. Okay, I think that was the right decision. Yeah. But, people, people don't want to be in a horse race with the greatest investor of all time yeah. if they don't have to. Yeah, you. But, I mean, you wanted. But to they were in a horse race with sure. the S and P. But be that as it may. Yeah, but yeah. but we, uh, J P Morgan does this great guide to alternatives, and the dispersion on hedge fund returns it's all over the place. Yeah. Right. People think of hedge funds as a category, but I know you know better than anyone. It's it's all over the place, and and there are actually liquid alts like ETFs and mutual funds that do a lot of the same things hedge funds do without leverage, which re affects their returns. But there's so much in there. And to your point, my favorite chart in that guide that they do quarterly is uh, basically their version of the Ibsen chart. Because I talk about this all the time, but we teach advisors how to build equity portfolios and fixed income portfolios. But you have to build an alt portfolio, especially with those hedge fund diversifiers in the same manner, where it, like you don't pick one, you don't like 
All bets on global macro. Right. All bets on you know market neutral. Okay, so you're right. Advisors have no idea. Yeah. So right that now chart is fantastic because it points to exactly what you're talking. about. Yeah, people about. talk about hedge funds as if they're one thing, but there yeah. are there. There's long only hedge funds, and there's market yep. neutral hedge funds, and there's global. I mean, there's a million. Yep. So is that changing? How are like? How do you see advisors uh, evolving to incorporate um, hedge fund like strategies or alts or whatever you want to call them? in their client portfolios. Well, see, now you're just teeing me up to promote myself. <laughs> well, no, because but, yeah. I don't know a lot about no, this, no. frankly. Um, there's definitely more interest. You know, the 60-40 is dead narrative that we've been hearing. I've always said it's not dead. It's just evolving. Um, you know, liquid alts have made it possible to invest in hedge fund-like strategies. Let's and define that for the audience. When somebody hears the word liquid alts, okay. what are they hearing? So two different definitions. The When I say it, I mean like ETF mutual funds and interval funds that any investor can buy. Some people mean it as invest in liquid, like okay. underlying. The first but definition when I refer is the to one. it as okay. ETFs, mutual funds, and so it's 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 funds. strategies that don't require all the paperwork. Right, right? you can exactly. buy it in, in a TD yeah. account. You don't have yes. to have a K one, but it, you can exactly. have a strategy that's not that's doing ETF and asset yeah. class. Exactly. Okay. There's some constraints to it uh, because the SEC says if you register under the 40 Act, you have limitations on leverage and things of that nature. But you can in include those things in your portfolio and improve risk-adjusted returns. But you have to kind of understand that, like, they are low correlation, right? So, like, For better and worse. For better or worse, they are low correlation. I actually got in a really um, interesting Twitter debate about a, a, fund. A liquidity, well, don't do that. About a fund <laughs> um, in this space where somebody was like, well, the 10-year returns are negative. I'm like, this fund is either up 25% or it's down because of its correlation. But, like, just a small percentage of it and, like, a traditional 60-40 actually substantially improves your shop ratio, like, substantially. So your ride is no longer a roller coaster and it's a lot so, smoother. So the end investor should want to hear that from an advisor mm -hmm. because why? Because, like, because risk-adjusted returns, yeah. meaning less – Compounded over time. Compounded over time. It, it, like, it's not sexy. In the uh, J.P. Morgan Guide to the Markets, they have a chart in there that talks about, like, a 30% allocation to alts, and then it shows, like, how it improves returns and reduces risk. And so they do 30%, and they're using HFR, so they're using private funds. But I have a similar chart in the deck we use that uses liquid alt products, like the model that I run. So my numbers aren't nearly as sexy as J.P. Morgan, and I'm only – suggesting a 20%, not 30%. You got to get advisors at like four right now. So like we got to move them there a little bit. Is that by where little. it is? It's yeah, it's about 4%. So I, I do 20%. So it's not sexy. Over 10 years, it's like 15 to 20 basis points uh, and improvement in annualized return. But think about that on a compounded basis. And then also think about the fact that your standard deviation of the portfolio drops by like 100 to 150 basis points. It's even more, uh, it's even more dramatic if, you look at the J.P. Morgan the first, guy. As an advisor talking to people from the alts world, the first question that I would ask is, should I try to time no. which strategies I choose to – like, should I represent to the client that I feel now is a good time for long short because so, of elevated market valuations? Or is that so not the right thing to say? I would suggest you would do it and – Ted, correct me if I'm wrong here because you ran a fund to fund. I worked for a fund to fund. That's how I got into the business. But um, it, you wouldn't do that with equities, right? Like if you were building a portfolio, some you wouldn't. Would, some would, but yeah, you would, would you would kind of say like I have large growth and I have large value, and maybe I tweak it at the edges, like I'm slightly overweight value, but you're never not in growth. And I would suggest that in the 
Altworld, you kind of have to think of it the same way. Now, I do sometimes add something into the portfolio that I would not hold over the long term, but there's foundation, uh, a foundation that like never changes, might tweak around the edges. Okay. And that's kind of how I focus on it. it. You build it the same way you'd build equity or fixed income. It's just nobody talks about that. Do you see it the same way? I do. Um, the, the return drivers in a hedge fund strategy are much fuzzier than, say, like if you own a stock, it's beta, it's small cap, large mm-hmm. cap. So you think about long, short, there's a component that's interest rates. And then most of the rest is the spread of the long performance versus the short performance for an individual That's manager skill. It's manager skill. So it's really hard to time. Like within the different hedge fund strategies, the one place where you do see people come in and out a little more is just based on what's happening in the credit markets. So would that be macro allocations or credit opportunities? No, it's if there's a lot of distress. Like like a muni arb or something like that or distressed securities. Yeah, when yield spreads are wider, you might see more credit exposure. And when yield spreads are really narrow, people might dial that back. But it's really hard to to predict what strategies will do. I have a question about risk-adjusted returns. Like how much do they matter? Like if you're looking at your account four times a day, yeah, smoothing it would probably be helpful, although you shouldn't be looking at that often. But if you're looking at a at a statement twice, well, you know, four times a year, twice a year. So I might be the only person who's ever come on the show that would profess to have learned something from Josh. <laughs> okay. This is really let, let me explain. This is a big moment. Years ago, <laughs> get the TikTok uh, yeah, camera so ready. Years ago, Josh came on the show, and we're this is in the early years of Ritholtz, and I'm, I'm talking to him about like, do you use alts for yeah. your clients? And he kept saying the same thing: doesn't matter, doesn't affect them. Isn't, doesn't matter for them to get the outcomes they need. So this question of like, well, risk-adjusted return, does it matter? What are you optimizing on? Mm. Are you trying to optimize for the results of someone to grow their assets to retirement over some time horizon? You might not need it. If you're trying to be more sophisticated and you say, okay, you already know the core of what you're doing is 70-30, 80-20, and you want it to be as good as it could possibly be, then you do care about risk-adjusted returns. And you have to think about like as Shannon said, how much of that should be right? In so the twenty percent is not else. a catch-all for everyone. No, twenty percent is kind of like the somewhere between twenty and thirty is kind of the optimal where you can get the best risk-adjusted returns. Anything less than ten, it's not going to have much of a difference. Anything more than thirty, it could hurt you. So less but, than ten, like almost like why bother? Right. Okay. But I will say this, kind of to why does it matter? Okay. So if I'm an advisor, my goal, and the reason I'm being hired by clients, right, is to help them reach some goal in the future, right? So if that future time period happens to correspond with a really big market drawdown, like you are not, so having that smoothing is actually good so that you don't potentially have the risk of a drawdown. If it works. Yeah. Well, I'd like (laughs) to say it works. My portfolio does. But, um, the, the point no, here, no, no. If the managers, right? If the you, managers work, that right. you pick yeah, do their job, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, if you diversify in those kind of things, like that matters. But yeah, there's a risk that you could have a massive drawdown right before whatever that endpoint is. Sequence and of so, return risk. Yeah, so yeah. you have that problem. And then I always say this all the time: no one is going to um, get overly excited. Like your client doesn't care if you beat your bogey. By 5%, 10% or whatever, they definitely care if you miss it. You will definitely get fired for missing your bogey, but they, honest to God, if their goal is to be able to pay and live a comfortable retirement with a certain number, like if you meet it, slightly exceed it, 
really, ex- they don't care. I think one they of just the, want to meet whatever the goal is. One of the problems with alts on the end client side is people have a tendency to line item all of their investments. So you could say to your blue in the face, no, 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 this is part of the whole portfolio. Mm-hmm. But if they see managed yes. futures underperforming for 10 years, they're going to get rid of it, probably right. at a bad time. Exactly. They're going to insist that you get yeah. rid of yeah. it. But right. that's that's why I started Bonnerman is because we wanted to help advisors be able to have those conversations um, and be able to talk about those things. And then I talk about this all the time. And this is kind of a nuanced way of doing alts for advisors. It's a little different than the institutional way is I like to encourage advisors you know, to build a traditional alts portfolio to be able to scale and have alts par- be part of the conversation all the time. But when it comes to alternatives, the coolest thing about it is the universe is very broad and you can invest in a lot of things. And so I like to say that advisors should look for ways to build and deepen their client relationships using alts by creating opportunities to connect with your client through an alternative investment solution. So what like, that, like how does that work? All right. So if you, like this appeals to me, it probably appealed to you guys. And I listened to one of your shows where you talked about this sports rights. Just one. Well, I, oh, I do many. like that. That was a good one. But yeah. like sports yeah. rights, right? Like how I, excited are you to call a client and say, yes. I have this opportunity in this fund and you're going to own a piece of your favorite sports team. They don't care. It's a liquid. It's not ever going to come up on the line yeah, item right. because it's people. an ego. Well, yeah. but no, we're talking about $50,000 minimums, yeah. accredited investor hurdles, things that normally you wouldn't be able to get into. But that's yes. exciting. But that's exciting. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Like, there's a real opportunity here to grow and build a relationship with your clients. Like, whether it be what I like to call ego investing, or I also say impact investing, where like, we were talking to a firm earlier this week who is doing like some, you know, residential real estate uh, in a place where it really needs affordable. And like 25% of everything they build, build goes to housing for heroes. And so you feel like you're doing something good for your community. Now you're connected with it. And now you're deepening relationship with your client. And they're invested in something that they now feel emotionally connected so to. So the mathematical returns should not be the entire story. Exactly. Of, of why you, you're looking at alts. Exactly. Even though you want good returns, mm-hmm. there are other benefits. I think Scaramucci figured that out like 15 years ago. And look, I, I've talked to the advisors that used to sell Skybridge and they're like, dude, don't you understand that if I could, if I have a $10 million client and I can give 250,000 of that to Steve Cohen Mm -hmm. in some way, shape or form, I can't do that myself. Anthony's platform can do that. The client isn't worried about, is it up or down more than the S and P the client is just wants a piece of their money managed that way. Yes. And that's what I'm doing. And, you know, the Bogleheads Forum would explode listening to that shit. But, you know, I understand that as somebody that deals with clients. Right. They sometimes do want to hear that there's something interesting happening with their capital. Well, not only that, but if you think about it, individual investors are emotionally attached to their money. So why not provide them with an opportunity to be emotionally attached to their investments? Okay. I, I totally agree with that. I like that as so well. Hedge funds were the stars coming out of the dot-com bust, certainly coming out of the global financial crisis. But it mm-hmm. seems like they were replaced with private equity, whether it's venture or more traditional buyout type stuff. Well, it's beta to equity. So um, venture— without, without the daily marks. Yeah. That's all it is. Like I always like to tell people, alts, there's alts that aren't 
diversifiers. So they don't belong in an alt bucket. So private equity, venture capital, that's equity beta. Like it's a different mousetrap, obviously, because it's not public markets, there's an information edge and you can get more alpha, but it's still equity. And like, same thing with private credit, it's still credit. It should be part of, it, it's just an illiquid slice of your traditional equity and traditional fixed income. So I want to ask you guys about this. There was always this idea that there was an illiquidity premium, which made sense, right? If mm-hmm. you can't get liquid, you should pay a lower price. You should have higher returns. I to- totally, intuitively makes sense. However... And I've said this, and and uh, Cliff Asnes has said this much better. I think there should be almost an illiquidity premium where I would sacrifice returns. Let's just use the S&P. Let's say I can get 8 9% in the S&P. I would take 7 7.5% if I don't have to have any volatility, even if it's bullshit. Even if I, even if I know there's volatility, I don't see it. I would pay for that. But yes, and that gets back to the earlier comment oh, about what, do risk-adjusted returns matter? You would, asked would if you, risk-adjusted you, returns yeah. matter. I would. I would. So what you're unraveling— With part of, with part of my portfolio, yeah. right. not the whole thing. But, Michael, what you're unraveling is the difference between the underlying investment and the behavior of investors. Right. Yes. The beauty of locking it in a box for 10 years is nobody can get in the way. Well, you why why we, you want to get your money back? Tough shit. Hold so, on. Can't that's get why it. real yeah, estate because, families are rich. Yeah, because behavioral sure. finance says you always try to get your money out yeah. at the worst right. possible yes. time. So no one's figured this out yet, but it's possible that the best private equity strategy— is taking the S&P 500, <laughs> leveraging it, it up, <laughs> and locking it up for 10 years yep. and seeing what happens. I saw an interesting proposal where somebody was trying to do this. I know there's a legal structure where there's a pool of money that invests in the S&P, and if you want to take your money out, you have to pay everybody else to get out. And everybody who stays in, it's like oh, a, that's, that's like a called, tontine. It's a tontine. Or, but it's somebody has to die. Somebody has to but die. I, but anyway, my, 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 my bigger point is that I think investors – would be happy to give up some returns in order to have the illusion of stability. How about I just change your password? <laughs> come on. Well, come on. You're talking about a lock, a physical lockbox. I'm saying I'll just bar you. No, you sign a contract no, with me. I'm, I'm saying And I'll bar access to your account for it's, 10 years. It's not crazy. I mean, if you talk to the people in the institutional market, one of the reasons why people embrace private equity is just that, right? They're reporting to a board. Maybe they're only in their seat for five years. So if they think they can make good investments and other people can't get in the way, there is value to that. There shouldn't be. Like to Josh's point, there shouldn't, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't pay for that. Everybody behave perfectly, which of course they don't. Right. Yeah, right. but it's also a lot easier if you're an endowment to not behave that way because like it's not your money. It's 100-year money. Well, it's you would not think. your money. But, but, yeah. it's, their, but it's a career. You'd it's think. Their, their job is Job risk is the biggest risk yeah. in um, institutional investing. The, Alternatives represented more than $20 trillion. This is a big queendom you have going. Mm-hmm. $20 trillion of global AUM as of year-end 2022 and accounted for half of the industry's global revenue. It's more like 13. The marks are wrong. Right. <laughs> and accounted for half of the industry's uh, – so half of the asset management business's revenue is coming from alts. Um, generating more than $190 billion for the firms that offer them. So it's a $200 billion a year business with $20 trillion in AUM. Mm-hmm. So alts are enormous. Um, I think the liquid alt part is the part that's really growing, though. Yes. Interval funds are changing everything. And the original stuff that came out can in you interval tell, funds— uh, Can you tell the audience what interval funds are? 
So interval funds are like an evolution of closed-end funds. That's the only way I can explain it. It allows for product to be offered that's illiquid by having only like quarterly ability to partial get a liquidity. partial Put money liquidity. in and out. Yeah. Okay. And it, it's partial liquidity at those quarterly. It's not like you can go get everything, but it will say you can take out up to But you could also 10%. put in. Yeah. You can put in as much as you want. It's just how much can you take <laughs> right, out at right, any right, given right. time. Right. Um, so <laughs> Hotel California. Yeah, yeah. But the cool thing about it is the original – Interval funds that came out, I didn't love. I was not a fan because it was Why? like long, short equity with a lockup that was worse than like a traditional um, hedge fund that still had an accredited investor hurdle. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Interval funds still have some constraint by the 40 Act. I'm just go to the LP, better liquidity, more options. Um, Who are the biggest asset managers here? Is this still like Blackstone and those? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Blackstone. It's What's you the know, biggest interval fund Like for people that want to like look uh, it up? I, I don't know. Or I haven't even who's the bigger provider in that space? I don't even know the answer to that question. Like the ones that I've looked at, there's been some um, stuff that's come out um, like in the VC space that's like interval. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the one that I looked at in the long short space that was interesting. But a lot of it is like hedge fund Companies, not like traditional asset managers that are coming out with this. But like Blackstone has a lot. Like B-REIT was an interval fund. And um, B-CRED is big yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. So those those are examples. And B-REIT, and those yeah. are probably the biggest ones now that I think about it. But the more interesting stuff's coming down the road. There's a lot of venture capital firms and a lot of private equity firms that want to launch interval product, which will make those illiquid markets that have never been accessible for like the average investor accessible. So it gives them access to more capital. Yes. I can't imagine that not being a hit in the wealth management channel. If like hypothetically like a 16 Z or benchmark or somebody with a great brand and great portfolio companies was just like, all right, here's how your clients can not buy the scraps, the bottom of the barrel, you know, uh, private companies, but the best ones in a way that they don't have to be locked up fully for seven years. And if they need some of their capital back, we can make it available. I will tell you personally, I'm not going to name names because it's not appropriate, but we talk to venture capital firms all the time because we're raising capital for the firm. But a lot of them will come to us and ask us if we can help them with their interval fund. Like I, there are big names out there right now that are launching interval funds in the VC world that are going to make a huge splash. I agree. I think it's I think it's going to be a big deal because yep. people a want what they historically haven't been able to have. Mm-hmm. B, it's an important asset class. It's like a maturing but now very very well understood asset class. Mm-hmm. Ventures. And yeah. And in the last 5 years everyone's nephew launched a company. Right. And most people's sons and daughters are working for stock options at a startup. Mm-hmm. That's just what's going on. Did you guys see so. the chart of SoftBank, the number of deals? Who put this out? This is uh, – John, we throw this out, please? Pitchbook. Yeah, Pitchbook. I guess this is uh, – I'm drawing a blank. Uh, which company is this again? Whose logo is that? I get their email every night. Oh, I believe this is FTX. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Uh, anyway, we're looking at the number of deals and the amount of money deployed. And uh, obviously, 2020, 2021 was a blow off top. What is that? $60 billion of funding. Uh, how many deals? 200 deals. And year to date. Uh, you may never see that again. You think you'll ever see 2021 levels of deal funding? I don't know. If funding? you go back to 99. I don't think the, the, the dollar amount was the same. Yeah, but 
I, I think it, we always have these fits and sports. Like, okay. you know, there's always uh, speculation that happens, and that tep- typically corresponds with— So it's two, know, 200 deals, $60 billion in one year for SoftBank. That's CB Insights, by the way. That's the chart that I was—that's uh, the comparison I was looking to. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. There was a big article in Bloomberg a couple of years back, like a feature piece on—I'm jumping around in the dock— on the, on the Vision Fund. You guys remember this? Masayoshi Shun, SoftBank, and the $100 billion blitz on Sand Hill Road. I tweeted this in 2018, and I said, I have a feeling this won't age well. The, the gist was he was trying to raise a new $100 billion fund every year. And that was, that, I mean, it, it went on for a while. That was 2018. So, but here's so the party the problem. went on for a while. Here's the problem. $100 billion having to deploy that, How? you have to, right. you're going to invest in bad right. deals. Right. It's just too much money. You can't be So we saw, we saw their pizza company. Yes, I forget what it was called. But he had a 300-year plan. So you can endure a lot of yep. bad deals in 300 years. Yeah, but then hopefully it's only institutional There's investors. not enough companies to soak up that amount yes. of capital. Let me, let, me, let me read this to you guys, get your reaction. Um, and I understand this is not representative of most venture funds. When SoftBank founder Masayoshi Son launched his $100 billion vision fund over half a decade ago, is that an increment we're now using? Half a decade? Five years ago, <laughs> the economy was sunny. Startups were being sprayed with money. And a new tech-led era was on the horizon. He claimed to have a 300-year plan. Uh, blah, blah, blah. A lot of shit happened. We work, robot pizza, dog walking. On Thursday, this is now, the Japanese conglomerate's technology investment unit reported a seismic $32 billion loss for its full year. I mean, that is, that is a lot of money to lose in a year. Especially when you don't have to mark to market and you can make up the prices. Yeah, so it's probably worse. There's a a little more to it than that. If you go back to what he was trying to do, you could mark when Amazon went public, it went public at like a $400 million market cap, and now it's a trillion-dollar company. There was a thought that there was an arbitrage between the private markets and the public markets, and if you could provide a lot of capital, you could capture it. If you went back two years, that vision fund was up – Mark to market, sixty or seventy billion dollars. It's probably more than anyone had ever made in that because space. Why Alibaba was a big holding. Well, they had a lot of things. They had a worked. bunch of things, that and that worked. was after we were. Oh, Arm up. Holdings. Um, I think was coupon, successful. Coupon went public. Right. Huge valuation. Part of the problem wasn't. I mean, that was a first mover. But then you had Tiger Global doing the same thing. You had Code Two on top of it. That hundred billion became yeah. like one hundred and fifty. Became like two hundred. Right. All the all the all the deals and, got inflated, and ultimately it didn't work. But and they it wasn't were the ones ra- given the term ra- sheets. So they were the ones. They were the conductors of the musical chairs, and everybody was dancing to their sound, and they had to, right? They were doing deals. I think Tiger was using Bain, right, as a consulting to do the due diligence, and then it was just like term sheet, term sheet, term sheet, term sheet. But they also had this idea that if you overfund the startup that you're investing in, then that startup could dominate a market. Faster than any competitors could arise. Oh, this is this is and, this and that's at, you know that's back to like that Amazon. There concept. were problems. There were problems with the model. What they were trying to do was capture a beta that the public markets used to capture. Right. It wasn't irrational to try to do that. Right. And you say like a hundred billion dollars. That's that's crazy. That's too much money. Maybe, but like, how much would that have gone public in the IPO markets? Hard to know. Right. Look, it didn't work. Things rolled over. It's been a disaster. But it was kind of an interesting, like, this is one of the things that happens in alternatives. You have people who spot some type of opportunity. 
that the public markets, the public credit markets aren't normally going to see and in the normal course. he's mostly gambling with his own money and with Saudi oil money anyway. Well, so, yeah. also, this nobody's, is something, nobody's like upset about it. It also would not happen if interest rates were not at zero right. for as long Absolutely. as they were. Just, yep. just period. Mm-hmm. Put this uh, VC investment sh- fall sharply. This is from PitchBook. Yeah, just what we're looking at is just the number, again, same thing as a soft bank, just the number of deals and the uh, amount of deals. And 2021 was the blow off top and deals are dead right now. There's just not, so not this a lot is of activity. Q1 2023. Is I can personally attest to the deals are dead part because it's been a, a, a grind trying to raise capital. Okay, right now. you're not going to get 0% interest rates back, but the IPO market is starting back up again. Kava, is, how do you pronounce I was that? down at it's it's Kava, Kava, and I was down at NYSE, and it was awesome. They were like giving away. It's like a real NYSE, IPO. So. Yeah, it was a great IPO. Yeah, so you can do deals again. And now that we got a couple of big ones done, this yeah. one can view. All right. Don't you need that to come back before you see venture deals? Yes. Like it's 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 yes. cause and effect. Yes. If there's no exit, then there's no entry. Yes. Okay. So that's, that's the good news. The you know, uh, the past couple of weeks, I guess, right? Yeah. In the Kava deal, I think it came in oversubscribed because I think the original price was twenty two, and I wasn't there when it finally opened. But when I left, it was it was uh, the spread was forty two, forty three. So I'm holding up my computer for the audience, but this is a chart. And it's going up. It looks like a breakout. You know what that is? That ticker is IPO. Oh, I, that's a, actually a fund I really like, the Renaissance IPO fund. Uh, I, I do like that fund a lot. P- people are coming back. Can we talk about uh, Goldman for a sec? Ted, did you start your career there? No. Okay. No, I never stepped inside an investment bank. Okay. Um, so there was a lot of pieces on Goldman this week. One came from Semaphore about they're, they're getting rid of Green Sky, which makes loans through middlemen. Uh, okay, that was a customer acquisition play, I guess, didn't work well. Puck had a, a hit piece about all the executives jumping ship. And then yesterday, the day before, the Wall Street Journal had like a pretty big one. Uh, Goldman Sachs is at war with itself. And this was the lead. Blank Fine, holding court at the hotel bar before a gathering of Goldman partners, groused about a successor, according to people familiar with the matter. David Solomon, Blank Fine said, was spending too much time away from his day job, jetting around in Goldman's private planes and DJing at nightclubs and festivals. Blankfein wasn't the only one complaining. Partners faulted Solomon, who wasn't present at the bar, for presiding over a money-losing expansion to the consumer lending that Goldman is now unwinding. The consumer business, they said, didn't make partners money. That stood in contrast with the bank's other units. Cracks are forming in a Wall Street institution, the vaunted Goldman Sachs partnership. So there's 420 partners, and, and they're, they're, they're talking on the press. Well, the, the problem is you're not going to get 2021 back. So 2022, everything was cut in half or worse. Right. No matter what you were doing. So well, I, I, I never understood why Goldman wanted to go into the consumer. Like Goldman was the like creme de la creme on the institutional side, right? So why I almost feel like that's like going into the consumer and the retail market to them is kind of like be- below them. Yeah, totally. Uh, right. and like it, it, it almost tarnished the brand in some way, which they, is they why they choice. they why it was bank holding company two thousand and eight. Oh, that's true. They became a bank. To survive yeah. 08, right. just like Morgan Stanley. Yeah, did. but this is kind of an inevitable thing when your brand was never about that. And to some extent, the prestige factor goes away when anybody, you know, it's All no. Right, but so I, they, so hi- they hired a lot mm-hmm. and they had 50,000 employees now and they laid off 4,200 and they're probably not done. But it's a lot of mouths to feed out of the same bonus pool. Mm-hmm. And that's why all these hit pieces are surfing, surfacing because people are calling Bill Cohen and saying, hey, I don't know if you heard about this. 
or, hey, Lloyd Blankfein is sitting at the pool in Miami talking shit about Diesel. You're getting these hit pieces because the, the profits were cut in half. How much of that is his fault? Of course they're cut in half. What did 2022 have to do with 2021? It was night and day environment for banking, for IPOs, yeah, but then for you, M&A. But think about who his, like, peers are and how they come across. Like, you have Morgan Jamie Stanley Diamond and— great right, right now, though. JP, uh, JP Morgan Chase. Like, Jamie Diamond is, like, you know, the preeminent, like, king of that space right now. And— He's not going around Michael, DJing and stuff. put up the stock price. Yeah. Uh, so you know what's interesting? The Look stock, at the scoreboard. Stock price has been okay. Yeah. Stock price has been fine. Goldman Sachs so, stock price. So this is like, if you circle back to what I was talking about with the bet, don't don't believe everything you read. Yeah, so look, this is Morgan. So this is this is since Solomon took over. So Morgan's in the lead. Okay, Morgan this Stanley's. Is, this is wait since late 2018. So October 2018 is when David Solomon started. Okay, Morgan Stanley, who is crushing it, is up 90 percent. Goldman is up 52 percent. XLF is up 21 percent, and so, so that's just insane. But where I feel like it's so bad, over the last year, it's not that bad. By the, yeah, look at it this since 2021. Just, this is just internal drama, though. That's, you but know I think saying? it's about the bonuses. That's it. Yeah, but, you know, the cool thing about this as investors is when people are distracted by a bunch of noise, it can be a good entry point. But guess what? Yeah, Goldman's, Goldman's actually outperforming Morgan over the last year. That's, so that's news Morgan to me. Stanley went down market. And, uh, Morgan Stanley went down market, and it worked. They bought E-Trade. It's not the only thing they did. They've made a lot of really good moves. Um, they've added to wealth management in a substantial way. Eden Vance, Parametric. Yep. Right. So they they went down, I don't know if it's that, that far down market. They didn't buy Robinhood. But it's their stock price is better. Yeah, and the Mo- perception is also better. But Morgan Stanley had Dean Witter. I mean, that's where I started my career. I was a retail uh, financial advisor. Um, you know, so that wasn't so far outside of what Morgan Stanley did. Um, versus Goldman. Goldman going to consumers is very odd. Yes. It did not work. And if you look at, yeah, the stock has done fair. Like in, in Solomon's defense, the stock has done fair. But if you look at their investment bank activity, which was their business, they're getting hosed. Like JP Morgan has taken all of it. Goldman yep. bought United Capital, which yep. is a retail RIA, yes. gigantic firm built by Joe Duran. Yes. Legend. Who is awesome. Yes. Uh, I think, is Duran speaking on Future Proof? I think. Don't know. All right. You're, Joe, you're invited. Um, <laughs> Goldman did that deal. I think people on both sides of that deal scratched their heads. I, I was working at Orion when that deal happened, and we were working on a I, deal with— I think I was in the office with you. I said, holy shit. Yeah, yeah. I was—so the United Capital people were like, wait, do I have a Goldman Sachs email address now? Because these are retail RIAs. They are not Goldman people. Right. Not that that's good or bad. I'm just—I'm pointing it out. Um, they wear khakis to work. Right. Okay. If you're lucky, uh, internal Goldman has wealth management, and they were probably like, "What the f- is this now? Right. Who? Yeah. Are, wait a minute. I'm sharing clients with, with no offense, these schlep rocks. Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't start. So that deal made everyone scratch their head, and but I'm then, not saying it's then good then or they bad. Went and but started about uh, custody. So right. So that I wanted to ask you about this. So now the new. Th- if you talk to Goldman people on the wealth side, the new thing that they're really investing in, and I'm sure they'll do a great job is building out custody. That is a, I don't want to call it down market, but that is a nuts and bolts, mechanical, non-Goldman-esque bit. That's a, that's like not a type of business that you think a high-flying Goldman Sachs executive would be excited about. So when you put all of these things together, you can understand why all these reporters are getting juicy Mm -hmm. shit about, quote, turmoil inside Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And maybe there is turmoil. We don't know. No, I mean, there definitely is. 
because they're talking. <laughs> um, a lot of them are not using their names when they talk to the reporters. So but. guess what happened today? Apple and Microsoft closed at a new all-time high. XLK was in like, I don't know if it was quite like a 35% drawdown, and it's just about at an all-time high. What a ride. Unbelievable. Ted, you want to make another bet? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Maybe don't bet Apple. Uh, all right, where are we going next, Michael? Uh, what is quiet luxury? Please explain this. No, Who put this in the doc? Shane is... Sh I put this in the doc because I, I have questions. I am, but I, I actually am a bit... Like, I'm a non-logo person. Like, so I you, You've been not, quiet luxury before it was cool? Yeah. I... I I can't remember what happened, but I had a friend or I was dating a guy at some point in time, like a decade ago, who was like, it's so obnoxious when people wear logos. And me like wanting to like, you know, whatever, Teddy. impress. I'm, I'm, I stopped wearing logos. And to this yeah. day, I don't, I don't buy anything with logos. So quite low, she's like a $200 white t plain white t-shirt? Or, New York or, <laughs> or like uh, a... $2,000 handbag, like a Louis Vuitton handbag that doesn't have the LVs. Like, All right. Marked by expensive materials and muted tones, quiet luxury, also known as stealth wealth, is the complete lack of <laughs> logos and anything too conspicuous, <laughs> uh, said Thomas Sadari, professor of marketing and director of fashion and luxury program at NYU. Quote, luxury brands rely on the quality of the materials, and they have techniques that are very particular to them. Feel this. Such as the cut, this is quiet luxury. This is actually loud non-luxury. Uh, such as the cut, stitching, or other small details only recognizable to those who are very familiar with a particular item. That becomes a differentiator for those in the know. So it's almost like you if you don't know that my shit is like really fancy shit, then like you're not in the club. And a lot of this, com I, I think the trend setting here is from Succession. I'll take it from here. Shana, do you know what this H stands for? I don't. Hermes. No. <laughs> Homage. Wait. <laughs> so, so, um, so this is like the fashion trend of the moment, probably of the summer and maybe yeah. longer. I don't know if you know, Ted is wearing a $1,200 uh, Laurel Piana uh, ensemble. <laughs> There's a massive, it's just, like, just weird— proof that you can fool anyone some of the time. You are stealth wealth. You are the epitome of <laughs> stealth wealth. There are such extremes in here. You have the stealth wealth side, but then all of a sudden you also have Walmart got a new creative fashion director, and, like, people on Instagram and the influencers going nuts for, like, Walmart— women's fashion no. is through really? the roof right now. Yeah, but does so it have logos stock. on it? No. So and that's, that's the part thing. of this. Right, it is, but it's Walmart and you paid $10 for a dress. Quiet discount. I love it. So I'm from Long Island. Mm -hmm. We know. We don't do stealth wealth. <laughs> if, it do if it doesn't say Givenchy, I don't want it. If it's not, if it's Givenchy, not. Givenchy, what the hell is that? All right. <laughs> I, there's not enough time on the show. <laughs> Michael shops on Instagram. It, like, I don't want Ferragamo shoes without the, the logo because right. I just might as well not wear them at all. So from where I come from, I don't think this is going to catch on. But in Manhattan, maybe in L.A., when I this say, is what's going on No offense because right you probably wear these. When I see the giant Ralph Lauren, I just think douche. Well, how giant? Like like big. Okay. I Mine, mine has really big horses. I saw a big horse at soccer the other day, and I just saw douche. I have one with a horse so big we have to feed it. <laughs> So no, <laughs> not, not, not to brag, not to brag. Um, so what are your thoughts? Does this continue or does this just go in and out of, should I rip the logos off all my clothes? 
Well, you said you're from Long Island, and that would never so fly. So I'm going to go with no. No, but I want to like I want to I want to improve myself. I, I I personally think it will go on forever, and and I actually think it's a good trend because, quite frankly, if you're going to spend that kind of money on something, like you want it for the quality, and you want it to not go out of style, and you know, having logos on everything is something that is going to go out of style, and you're not going to be able to wear when you're like 80, or maybe you will. But also, repeat wearings, right? So if you have something that's understated mm-hmm. and not logoed up and you don't have a giant Gucci emblem on your chest, right. you could wear it in like three or four situations. You could take your horse out like once a year out of the stable. Yeah, like, like some tops. of my horses, yeah. yeah. No, this is true. Mike can wear his white T-shirt every week. That's right, Duncan. That's right. Mike has been doing this stealth wealth for a long time. You know, that's true. Absent the wealth part. <laughs> All right. All right. I was just curious. I was just curious on your thoughts. You're both dressed lovely today, though, of course. So, um... You wanted to talk about Djokovic and Jokic, and I did too. Yeah. Uh, Serbia is so hot right now. What, what do you think is going on? It's just a coincidence, or are they producing really stellar uh, athletes? Well, it's two different things, right? In tennis, you've had a long history of international players being great. Back to Rod Laver, right? Yeah. Lendl, the big three. Basketball, it's new. I mean, this is Jokic is effectively a descendant of Josh. I mean, he's got the dad bod. Okay. He's got the the chin. I mean, you could probably be a stunt double for him. He's seven feet feet tall. They can can work on that with cameras. Okay. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Like, it's just— But even with that body, he runs up and down the court and plays both sides of the ball. He's amazing. I just want to be fair. Like, this is, like, former Soviet bloc, like, athlete. So, like, I I would— These are Drago descendants. Yeah, I would suggest, you know— there's always been a level of athleticism, maybe not seven footers or anything, in that area of the world. And like Serbia, uh, that whole area, the, those countries have changed names a million times. Yeah, like yeah. my family comes from that area and like that. Um, One time in Los Angeles, Josh and I thing. sat next to Djokovic. Really? Remember that? He was oh, behind us. We were us. at Catch LA. Yeah. Not to brag. Um, <laughs> stealth wealth, like, Michael. No, that I wore my, I wore my logos to that place. <laughs> you, you had one and you wore it? Okay. But I would argue that part Was of the Nike? world. <laughs> that part of the world is, you know, Lithuanian. Like, they, they, they have produced good athletes. Um, it's just Serbia's day in the sun. I, th- I think a- in the NBA, the talent pool is now global. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, the best yeah, players absolutely. are global. The best players are Giannis, now from the United yeah. States. Giannis, Luka. Jokic. Yeah. Remember, they, didn't they do the Rising Stars game? They used to, rest of world versus yeah. U.S., yeah. Yeah. and yeah. this year they stopped. That might have been a crime scene if they if they ran that. Oh, and uh, Wembenyama. Yeah. So the, literally, of- like, the best players in the world, except for Steph, are all international. This is a crazy stat. The 2023 NBA playoffs were the league's most watched in five years. Not quite sure why. I wonder what the finals ratings were. I loved it. The finals ratings were down yeah, I'm not 6% surprised. because— the Nuggets were never on national TV yeah. the whole season. Yeah. It's also strange because so many of the playoff games were blowouts. Yeah. It's just I a was, strange playoff. See, way. I'm a Celtics fan, and this this was like the most stressful, horrible playoff run tough. to watch. I mean, you got far. It just yes, sucks but who they, you lost. They, really bad Well, ending. not only that, but they managed to give you a heart attack through every series of whether or not they were going to yeah, make yeah, it through. Yeah. Like, yeah. They, they should have— they should have been crushing people, and they would let everybody hang. I felt like they like if they got by, if they had gotten by Miami. How do you, how do you think they would have played they against Denver? No, they would have they would have lost. They yeah. would have been the same outcome. They would have got crushed. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Sweeper five. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I think the finals were down. Be, oh, so number one, there was no game six. 
Mm-hmm. Number two, last year was Celtics, which is a legacy team. Right. Warriors. And Warriors, which has the most popular player. Mm-hmm. And so I and and a, it's a obviously San Francisco Bay Area uh, viewership is way bigger than yeah, uh, Denver. To, to Michael's point about the finals being down, but the rest of the uh, being watched, you had the Celtics and Lakers yeah. in there. And the it wasn't time. a great yes. playoffs. No. It really wasn't. Yeah. Uh, I thought th- I thought some of the games were really fun. Yeah, it was, the there, was not, there was not a ton of drama. Actually, Miami was in all the best series. I was going to say Miami actually kept it interesting. So Miami the beat the show yeah. to the box, and then uh, did they beat the, the Sixers? No, the Knicks. The Knicks series Knicks. was a good series, though. It was decent. And then the Celtics Sixers yeah. was yeah. a good series. That one's seven. And then Celtics Heat one was seven. A, that was yeah. a great series, yeah. especially the game six. Yeah, ending. I want to end on this. Jack Dorsey has a three hundred uh, million dollar bar bill. Basically, what? That's hmm? how many Classy Azules did he drink? No, no, no. They're saying like he he, he bought title. Thank you, John. He bought title, <laughs> a music streamer, uh-huh. just to make friends with Jay Z, and he got sued for it. Uh, this is real. Um, many people assume that Twitter was the reason for Jack Dorsey's impressive fortune. That actually isn't the case. Uh, when Elon Musk acquired Twitter in October 22 for $44 billion, Dorsey only held 2%. Um, so he got like $900 million out of that. The true source of his Square. wealth is in the friendships he made along the way. No, the, <laughs> the true source of his fr- uh, wealth is Block, uh, which he has 43 million shares. That's Square. Excuse, uh, well, they call it Block, block now. now. Um, that's worth $2.75 billion. So I'm not going to cry because he only got 900 million. He'll be fine. Uh, he'll be fine. On March 4th, the world was taken aback when Block announced its agreement to acquire Title for 306 million. Uh, the news broke through a tweet from Dorsey that showcased him hanging out in the Hamptons with Jay Z. Uh, fast forward, a lot of people weren't happy, etc. A lawsuit brought by Block shareholders said the idea for Block's acquisition of Title came while Dorsey was summering with Jay-Z in the Hamptons. Um, it was an out-of-the-blue acquisition. And that makes no sense. Why would they own that music yeah, company? Yeah, I was going to say, there's absolutely no, like... Well, the shareholders make- lost. So they sued and they lost. The recent legal battle ended in defeat for shareholders. The Delaware judge overseeing the case ruled against shareholders, um, emphasizing from a technical standpoint, doing a bad business deal doesn't violate any laws. And then somebody involved said, basically, this was a $300 million bar tab to hang out with Jay-Z. Your thoughts as somebody who's seen a lot of uh, deals and read a lot about deals? In the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add. Good. <laughs> there you go. Shayna? I got nothing. You wouldn't spend $300 million to buy something from Jay-Z just no. so you can hang out in the Hamptons with him for, no. for a summer? That's not stealth wealth. No. That is the op- <laughs> We say that's the opposite of stealth wealth. I would. Maybe if I had $3 billion, I would. Have you ever seen or heard of a title listener in the wild? No. Never ever, right? Never. Yeah. Okay. I'm convinced that there's really no audience there at all. Maybe. So, uh, all right. You guys have fun on the show today? I did. Sure. Yes? yes? Was it everything that you hoped it would be? Yeah. We absolutely loved having you. Thanks for having us. What's, uh, what's, what's, before we get into favorites, what's next for the queen? What do you got going on? Uh, we're doing some cool stuff at Bonnaroo. Okay. Uh, we Tell have us. an amazing tech partner that has built all our um, all our technology. Is called, it Title? No, it's called Alphabot. Um, and our uh, Dimitri, who's the gentleman who runs Alphabot, is helping us with an integration 
to do an end-to-end solution for advisors from like the front end to be able to also do all the streamline the operational compliance reporting and everything. And super excited about that because Alphabot already was cool because it's one of the only analytical tools available to advisors that can do optimization with private fund vehicles and traditional investments, which is very rare. Um, so this optimization is going to be a game changer. I'm super excited about. When is that? When does that come out? Well, um, I can't talk a ton about the details, but I'm hoping at the end of the at the end of the summer we'll have something to announce. Okay, congratulations. Looking, looking forward to uh, checking that out. Uh, and Ted, you have the book coming, and tell us what to expect on the podcast in in the coming weeks. Oh, more of the same. Coming weeks. Um, Who are the best guests you've great. had on? Not the best. I don't want you to do that. That's who are hard. like some of the more interesting guests that you've had on this year? And Chris Sacco was just on. Okay. He, he's the one who owned all the Twitter that Dorsey didn't own. I feel like I haven't seen him in the newsletter, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's the first time he's done it in a couple of yeah. years. They've been heads down investing Very cool. in environmental stuff. Yeah. Okay. Who else? Um, boy, there's, it's hard to ramble it off. It's been a good run. Yeah. You know, I had Lazary on recently. Oh, yeah. Mark's always good. Um, just a lot of great when guests. When are you going to have Shana on? I don't know. We're going to figure I've that ar- out. Afterwards. I've already told Ted that I have a client that he needs to have on first. Oh, look at you. Take selfless. care of our clients first. Looks I got to take care of my yeah. clients. All right. Well done. All right. We're going to do favorites. We're going to ask you guys to share something with the audience that you think maybe they haven't checked out yet or might enjoy. Uh, Michael, let's start with you today. Well, I can't do what you just said, but I enjoyed it. I just want to congratulate the Denver Nuggets fans. They have never won a championship. I had a lot of fun watching them beat the Heat. Uh, as a Knicks fan, so I had, a, I had a great time. I like when a city that's never won wins it. Yeah, it's awesome. It's great. I'm, 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 I'm very cool happy for them. I'm with you. Okay, Shana, what do you got for favorites? So, I was thinking about this. One of the things I saw that I was super excited about is on Amazon Prime. There is a documentary that just came out called All In. A Miracle at St. Bernard's. And the reason this is so cool to me is that St. Bernard's is in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. So that's around the area I'm from. My former high school, St. Peter Marion, is mentioned a lot in this series. Okay. What's it about? So it's about a Catholic about school Chamath. in Fitchburg <laughs> that was going to be shut down by the Diocese of Worcester. Worcester oh, yeah. is my hometown. And that with 100 kids fielded a football team of 30 kids that won back-to-back state championships. Oh, wow. Um, With 30 kids, 100 kids total in the whole school. And through the exposure that they got in the media, they were able to raise over $2 million and convince the diocese to allow them to privatize. And now their enrollment's up like 60%. They've raised over $3 million. And it's an amazing story of how the football team team saved the school. Yes. Oh, that's cool. It's a very cool story. And uh, the funny part is, when I was at St. Peter Marion, we used to absolutely beat the crap out of St. St. Bernard's. <laughs> okay. Like we had kids that uh, one of my friends, Jerry Azuma, uh, went on to play for the Bears for ten years. Yeah. Um, and we had kids go on to the NFL from our team, and we were the ones that was crushing everybody. So the irony is not lost on me that St. Bernard's little like uh, football team with thirty players. Uh, was able to save their school and St. Peter Marion doesn't is it a, exist Is it anymore. a movie or a documentary? It's a documentary. It's okay. super cool. It's on Amazon Prime. And when did this take? When did this happen? When did it take place? Two thousand. Uh, they they got their uh, their ability to privatize January of twenty twenty. Oh, so this is recent. Very recent. Oh, very cool. Are you so you a, are you a Patriots or a Bears fan? I'm a Patriots fan. A born okay. and raised. My grandfather didn't have a lot. But the one thing he did love was sports. And so when the Patriots became a team, he, like, got season tickets, uh, okay. like, in the 60s. Yeah. And so I lived through the 
burning my legs on the bleacher seats at the old um, whatever. I can't even remember the name of the stadium. Right. It was just Foxborough before Kraft when we sucked you had ble- so you had bad. So no, we had like Stan Grogan. Yeah, we had Grogan. We had those uh, those guys. I've met I've met Steve Grogan. He's a good dude. Um, but yeah, that's what I grew up with. So I'm a Patriots fan. I'm a Celtics fan. My dad very, very briefly played for the Bruins, like for a hot second. And then he met a Rockette, and then he stopped going to practice and got cut. Um, uh, but <laughs> um, it's a fun story, actually. So he, I'm a huge Bruins fan. The only team I have given up allegiance to is the Red Sox. But I moved to Chicago in 2016. Uh, and how could so, you not? Oh, that's how could you not you got the bu- become you got the fever. a Cubs fan? Yeah, I'm with that. you on that. I'm with you. You got the fever. Yeah. Uh, Ted, favorites. All right, more sports. Good. Uh, the one less known, uh, my friend Brent Montgomery, who created Pawn Stars, his most recent oh, really? Netflix show. It's called The King of Collectibles. Mm. And it's oh, it's all Golden, sports, right? Yeah, Ken Golden. Sports Collectibles. I did a whole series. It's really cool. Who is the King of Collectibles? And Ken should Golden. we introduce him to the Queen of Alternatives? <laughs> I, I haven't watched it yet. It's good? Yeah, it's good. It's okay. really good. Did you um, see the Arnold doc? That just came That's out. It was great. I didn't yeah, watch it yet. Yet. It was great. No. And I'm then sorry, the other one, I mean, this is like, I guess you have to say it. So I've watched the season finale of Ted Lasso now three times. I don't think I've ever watched a Netflix season. show. The, the, well, maybe the last season, maybe not. That's a little weird. Go on. It is one of the best finales of any series Why? that I can remember. Every segment of it set up or wrapped up one of the storylines over Force. It's just so, so good. I watched season two. I haven't started the new season. I have to watch the whole finale season. Finale of the last the season. Unbelievable. Okay. Um, all right. We'll check that out. I wanted to, to – what What did I put in here? Oh, I don't really subscribe to a lot. I subscribe to Wall Street Journal, New York Times, almost because, like, I have to. Mm-hmm. And then, a f- like, a few sub stacks that are friends of mine that I just – I'm paying because I'm supporting them. Um, I subscribe to Puck because I just think, like, they're doing the most interesting writing about just, like, power. And who's, like, running shit and what's going on. And they cover three verticals. They cover Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Hollywood? and Hollywood. And I almost thought to myself, like, oh, oh, and D.C., excuse me, four. And what else even matters? Nothing. Like, if you're trying to figure out what makes the world go round. Those are the four things. Sports. No, no, not really. They have well, zero no. influence yeah. on anything. Well, that's true. It doesn't matter, matter but it matters. It matters. It matters. No, but this is more about, like, they're writing about the people – behind the big trends yeah, yeah. that are affecting all of us. Like, sports is a no, diversion. I, I, agree. I agree. So politics, sports, media. It's D.C. specifically. Not just politics like they're covering somebody running for right, something so in DC. Kansas. Washington, D.C., Wall Street. Hollywood. Silicon Valley, Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What else a, matters? Na- named after a piece of hockey equipment. Puck, right. I think it's probably named after the uh, like the little cherub, maybe. what? It, what I don't even know what that thing is. Uh, like the Puck <laughs> building in lower Manhattan, Right. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Almost doesn't matter. Uh, great writers, great reporters, like full-time reporters. It's not like somebody's hobby substack. So anyway, I can't remember the last time I pulled out my credit card to subscribe to something, but uh, Puck is pretty great. And for free, they have a podcast called The Powers That Be. So if you just want to dip, you could dip. Um, the second thing is another podcast. You, I'm sure you listened to Acquired, right? Yeah, sure. Did you listen to the Dara uh, episode not about yet. Uber? Yeah, not yet. Incredible. Um, that's like one of the best CEO interviews ever. And not because it's about Uber, which I'm a shareholder in. So I have like a, a, my own self-interest, the story about working for Barry Diller, getting the opportunity to save Uber 
and then Barry supporting that. And uh, it's just like stories that you don't really hear that often. So highly recommend the Acquired podcast, uh, the the episode about Uber. All right, that's all we have for today. Duncan, any announcements before we get out of here? Uh, no, I think we're good. We're good to go? Okay. Um, I really appreciate it being 85 degrees in here today. So if we... If they did it for me. <laughs> they, they did it for me. Were you cold when you walked in? I, I bet you're not anymore. Not all anymore. Right. Hey, guys, thanks so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe. Very important. Make sure if, uh, if you have not already, write a review. Duncan loves to read the reviews. He reads them to us. We appreciate hearing them so much. Uh, also wanted to mention, if you are a visual learner like I am, this show appears on YouTube every day about eight, what would you say, John? Eight hours after the podcast drops-ish? Yeah? All right. So you know where to find us, youtube.com slash the compound RWM. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to our guest, Ted Sides, and thanks to Shana. Guys, where could people follow you? Uh, you're your Twitter guy still, or uh, yeah, ish. It's mostly capitalallocators.com. So follow follow capitalallocators, old, old school website. I know I do. Shana, where do you want people to follow your stuff? I'm on Twitter and Instagram. So uh, Twitter, I don't have a fancy handle. What Sh- is it? Shana S six two one. And on Killer. Instagram, I go with my finance queen. That's I wear, right. I wear my crown. That's right. You are the queen of all time uh, on Insta. All right, guys. Thanks so much. We will see you next week. Quick break and then we're gonna record. I just wanted you guys to get a feel for what.